Morning, church family. Let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, and uh, I invite you to follow along with me as I begin in verse 1. We'll go all the way down to verse 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Let the one who observes the day observe it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. One of the primary concerns of our Lord for his church, that is, believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christians, our Lord's desire for us is that we should be unified, that we should be one. In fact, this was Jesus' prayer and. That great high priestly prayer of John chapter 17 where he says in verse 21, he prays that they all may be one. And he was speaking of all believers throughout all time. This is why Paul exhorts the church in Ephesus to bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's on this basis that Paul rebukes the Corinthians for their divisions and asks, is Christ divided? Again, this is why he exhorts Yodia and Syntyche at the church in Philippi to agree in the Lord. The reason the scriptures are replete with exhortations for the church to be unified is because one of the main schemes of the devil is to divide us. Where Satan is not able to infiltrate us, and lead us astray through false teaching, he aims to derail us over foolish controversies and quarrels over opinions. He gets us to consider ourselves as more important than others, 
And as a result, our love will grow cold. Church that does not love one another inevitably devours itself. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we need to be on guard. On guard against the schemes of the evil one. And we must learn particularly how to live in harmony with one another when we disagree over matters of conscience. It's in those times, I would argue, that the evil one is not going to be idle and and is going to stir up the flesh and seek to bring division amongst us. Well, this is where we left off last Sunday. If you were with us, we we began to look at these first 12 verses, didn't quite make our way through it all, so we're giving another stab at it. This is where we were last Sunday, and if you weren't with us, we began to explore how to deal with matters of the conscience. And by the conscience, I mean this, and a definition will be up on the screen, I'll read it. God's gift to all humanity, or humans, whereby we have the capacity to make moral judgments discerning what we believe to be right or wrong. How do we live in harmony with one another? How do we wrestle with differences when we have different matters of conscience or we, our conscience doesn't line up? Where do we go from there? How do we bear with one another? And, and imagine your, your small group, uh, your ministry team, maybe even members of your own family. Anywhere you're going to rub shoulders with other people, how are you going to bear with them in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, when you deeply disagree over matters of your conscience? This is what we're talking about this morning. How do we cope when people are at different places Maybe in the process of sanctification, that's a big word. Process of growing in the likeness of Christ. How do we interact with one another, recognizing we're at different stages? I spoke about this last Sunday a little bit. If we're reaching people and growing as a church ourselves, the church is going to be filled with individuals and groups of people who are different and whose conscience, by the way, has been informed differently than yours. And so as we saw last week, verses 1 through 12 address how does the church live in harmony, maintain unity, live out the gospel with one another when some are weak in the faith and others are stronger. Last Sunday, we saw that both groups, as we interact with one another, must fight against the temptation of pride. Why is that? Because both groups think they're right. And and as I said last Sunday, um, and none of us think we're in the weak category. So that that makes it a little more difficult. How, How do we interact when we disagree? Both groups are going to be having to fight the temptation of pride. We saw last week that the weak are going to have to fight the temptation of making judgments on the godliness or maybe even the salvation of the strong, thinking that by their conservative lifestyle they're more godly than those whose conscience does not restrain them in the same way. On the flip side, neither 
And the strong despise the weak, thinking little of those whose conscience they deem is overly sensitive. So over the next month, or two out of five sermons on this topic, we're going to wrestle with the matters of of conscience. And and I said this again last week, I, I think this is one of the most important issues in the life of the Christian. The principles that that we're going to wrestle with over the next several weeks are important for all of us. And I would argue 99% of the conflicts that happen in the church are a failure of dealing with them biblically as we're instructed here. It's just as if we're ignorant to these things or we just decide to chuck them out the window. And so I, I am appealing to us that these things are going to be very practical for wherever you find yourself. Whatever conflict you are in right now, we all have them. These things apply. And so over the next month as we wrestle with matters of the conscience, specifically here in chapter 14, it's my prayer that we would foster the biblical virtue of charity. Showing charity to one another. Showing kindness, giving each other the benefit of the doubt when we differ. Why? Because as we're going to learn in these two chapters, that is the that is the character that God has shown towards us. That is the virtue that God has torn towards us, and he's always right. How much more shall we who think we're right, and might not be, show charity to one another? You get that? That's, that's kind of the, the greater to the lesser. If Christ has shown charity to you, we're going to see that. He has welcomed you, who you are his enemy. How much more should we welcome one another, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, when we disagree over the matters of conscience? Last Sunday, we looked at and discovered what do we mean by these matters. I gave a list of examples. Um, So if you missed last Sunday, um, uh, I encourage you to listen to that sermon. It's online. Just what kind of categories are we talking about? Maybe what, in case you weren't there, just to set the, the record straight. We're not talking about differences over clearly... Um, um, identified sins in Scripture, where all Christians agree. We're not talking about um, how do we differ one another with heresy in the mix. We're not talking about those things. We're talking about where good Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, disagree. Okay, so this isn't a matter of trying to chuck out church discipline or something like that. Then we looked at where are we tempted in these matters? And we're both tempted to pride. But this morning, I want to begin to consider solutions for harmony in the body of Christ. And we're going to look at three of these. We, I touched on them at the end of last Sunday. We're going to come back to them this Sunday. And, and the first solution that I want to draw to our attention is, is that we need to always remember when we're in conflict within the body of Christ we're already accepted by Christ, okay? We need to keep that principle at the forefront of our minds. Now, typically, in my experience, the one who is strong in the faith or more mature, whose conscience doesn't restrain them in this context, 
to abstain from things that God hasn't commanded us to abstain from, those who are in the strong category typically don't question the godliness of the one who's weaker. That's usually not how that plays out. In other words, the the strong in faith typically don't doubt the acceptance of the weaker brother or sister before God. They might even say, you know what, they're more holier than I am. The person who wants to, to champion their liberty. But in practice, I see those who think they're strong. In practice, they don't accept those who are weak. They avoid the weaker one because they annoy or frustrate them. They're too uptight. And so the strong doesn't invite this person to come with them on, on activities with other believers in Christ. And this isn't trying to argue that you can't have friends. You always got to invite everybody to everything. I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying, you know your own heart. You're making plans, and maybe you're making them on a Sunday after the service where we're going to go eat or what we're going to do, and you see that person walk close. We don't want them to know what we're doing. That, that's what I'm talking about. We don't want them to come because they aren't going to like the games we play, the movies or shows that we watch, or joke about the things we like to joke about. And yet Paul says to the strong in verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. This means that the one who's stronger in the faith, if, if you're claiming you are in the strong category, you are to take the initiative to receive the weak. And that's something I just don't think we, we do well with. We think, well, that's their problem. If they don't get with the program, if they don't understand their freedom in Christ, if they're just going to be too uptight, well, that's, their, that's on them. Well, what we're going to learn here is that the strong, the one who's truly mature in Christ, takes the initiative to receive and include the weak. They go out to find the one on the fringes. And it's not, as you can see, for the purpose of arguing and getting the weaker one to come to your position. Rather, look at, look at chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And right there, that statement actually defines who's mature in Christ. Because I think some of these, Paul has a little tongue-in-cheek play on words here. He did it with the opposite way in 1 Corinthians 4 that, that Pastor Jim read in, in mocking the Corinthians. Oh, you're strong. You don't need us. We're weak. Some people think they're strong and they know their liberty in Christ, but actually they're very immature in the faith. And some who are labeled as weak in the faith might actually be strong. Well, how do we sift it out? Who's really strong in the faith? The one who bears with the failings of the other. That's the one who truly understands the depths of the gospel as it implicates in people's lives. The one who just cannot bear with anyone. I must withdraw or I'm going to despise. Well, actually, you're showing yourself to be very immature in the faith. The mature 
like Christ. Seek out the weak. Not to despise them, not to judge them, but to receive them. And so we are to remember how Christ welcomed us, right? How he welcomed us while we were still weak. And, and, and we are then to exemplify that biblical truth by befriending others weaker than us. This is that principle we saw in chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now the challenge is, is that the weak usually don't think they're weak. Maybe they've, they've been a Christian for a long time, but have severe, severely been stifled in their growth. Or maybe the weak is someone who's gone through seminary but hasn't been able to connect the dots between good theology and good practice. Or maybe the weak is a new believer and the stench of sin is so fresh that they're hypersensitive to anything that reminds them of their former life apart from Christ. And I would say that, actually on that one, there's something just precious and sweet about that that we should see. This lack of maturity for those who are truly weak in the faith, hinders that person's ability to accept others whose conscience is not as sensitive as theirs. That's, that's usually what happens. And so if you're in this boat, if, if you struggle with others, you think they just don't get it. They're not as... And we typically... Our theology is good enough to tell us we're not holier than them or more righteous. But everything about us is communicating that. And we just can't stand being with those people. You're the one who's weak. That, that's what's happening. And we all have our, if you want to continue with that theme, our weak moments, right? But if you're in that boat, what we all have to remember is that God has already welcomed the one who weaker than you or stronger than you, whatever you are in the debate, the person who abstains from the things that you do, and you think, unbelievable, I cannot believe they do these things. Paul says, remember, look at the end of verse 3, for God has welcomed him. And primarily, this exhortation is to the weak, because the weak think certain things are sins that aren't, and they separate from people. Or they don't know how to handle disagreement, so they naturally just separate from people. And Paul says, especially speaks to them and says, remember, God's already welcomed them. And that's humbling. Look again at verse 18 of chapter 14. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God. You see that? Well, that should be us. We're talking about our church family. You see people serving Christ in all their ways as they're gifted, and then you find out they do something that you don't approve of. What's your thought? What's your knee-jerk reaction? Oh, they're just not godly. Remember, they're already acceptable to God. And while Paul's 
emphasis in especially these first 12 verses is upon the, the weaker brother or sister. This is applicable to both groups because we need to know how to show charity to one another because God has already accepted the weak and the strong as they are in Christ. Well, how can that be? Well, because no one's accepted by God on the basis of works. If you understand the gospel in your own life, God didn't accept you because you had it all together. In fact, that's the very premise. That's, that's the one like requirement that every person must come to realize if they're going to find gr grace in Christ. You must humble yourself and see yourself as a wretched sinner. And there's truth by which you are still a wretched sinner. But we're not what we were. It's only through Christ that we have been made righteous. And so in Christ, we are no more or no less acceptable to God today than the first day we believed. And that's really tough for me to, to really get my head around. That the day I was declared righteous in Christ, I'm no more or no less righteous today than goodness 18 years ago. Now, that doesn't mean I haven't grown in faith in Christ. It doesn't mean I've, I haven't grown in some degree of glory to the next and, and being conformed to the image of Christ. But I'm no less, no more acceptable than the day I first believed. And that's true for you as well. And if we remember that about one another, oh, I think that will help us to be charitable to one another when we disagree. You see this again in 15 verse 7. This is, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This, this theme just permeates these two chapters. And basically what we need to remember is that we're all Christians here at Oak Park. If you're a member, and it's not like our membership process is really uh, lacking, if you, if, you, if you know what I mean. I mean, we have you come and share your testimony. You, you have an interview with a pastor. You go to a, a, a two-and-a-half-hour class to talk about what we believe. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't any people who could come through and actually don't really believe. But, but we're asking these same questions of everybody, and we're receiving one another, and we're hearing them confess Jesus is Lord. We're talking about believers here. We've heard their confession of faith. We've heard their conversion. We're about to receive, I think, 13 new members tonight. If you've been here over the last couple of months, you've heard their testimony. Chances are you're going to have conflict with one of them. Welcome to the family, those of you who are new. You're going to have conflict. And what you're going to need to remember is, I've heard their testimony of faith. They're a brother or sister, and they've already been accepted just like me. And that will change the tenor, the tone, how you jump to conclusions. It'll hinder you from jumping that far. Therefore, if we're accepted by God in Christ, we have been given, what, new hearts that love Christ. And this means, I, as we think of one another, we must, point number two, remember that each are striving to live in honor of Christ. So if we're genuinely Christians, and we're giving that premise as members of, of the body of Christ at, at Oak Park Baptist Church, we need to give charity to one another, assuming 
Everyone here is genuinely loves Jesus and trying to honor him. No one you're going to talk to is just like, oh, yeah, I just don't really want to live for Jesus. Or that area in your life, you just think, man, they are a mess. They must not love Jesus. Come on. Yes, they do. They do love Jesus. And we see this as Paul addresses the two issues in Rome. Remember uh, that, that some were saying you can't eat meat. And others were saying you can. Others uh, were saying you, you need to keep the Sabbath. And others were saying, no, that's been fulfilled in Christ. And you've got great divide. There was a, a, an ethnic divide of, of Jews and Gentiles by and large. And one group saw, saw what you eat and what you do on a particular day is, well, if you don't obey the rules, sinful. Or another group says, no, it's not. And so this isn't, oh, we, you know, we, one's a Louisville fan and one's a Kentucky fan. We're not talking about trivial matters. We're talking about things where people deeply disagree. <coughs> but notice how Paul addresses them. Notice what he says to both groups. He says both in what they are seeking to do are striving to honor the Lord. You see that in, uh, in verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> one person esteems one day as better than another. Well, another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. We're coming back to that phrase. <laughs> the one who observes the day, now notice, that's the one who keeps, in, this, in their context, the one who says Saturday is still the Sabbath. You must keep it. They're wrong, okay? They're wrong. But Paul says they observe it in honor of the Lord. Then he goes on the other side. The one who eats, in this case, this one's right, but the weaker person thinks they're in sin, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. But then back to the strong, the one who abstains, that's the weaker one. Strong people remember this person abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now again, you see this, these themes, they honor and give thanks to God, don't they? Both groups are, even though one's wrong and the other's right. But the key thing that you need to see here is that both give thanks and honor to God for their life, which is different than the unbeliever of Romans chapter 1, who though, although they knew God did not give thanks or honor him as God. You, you see the difference? We're talking about Christians here. They love the Lord. The people here in this church, the person you are at conflict with right now, loves Jesus just as much as you do. They are seeking to honor and give thanks to God. And so the heart of the gospel is worship. It's worship. It's not rules. Remember Romans 13, 10? Love fulfills the law. But this isn't an empty love. This is a biblical love. In other words, a genuine Christian who loves God and loves people will fulfill the law and keep the heart of it. And that's why Paul, Paul's able to live in this tension. We got someone who's, mm, they're not really right about that. God doesn't 
doesn't keep you from doing those things. He just says, if they're doing it in honor of the Lord, in due time they'll come around. So think about this. If, if you're a Christian, what has happened? You have a new heart, right? A new heart's been given to you, for which now you love God and you love your neighbor, but you also love His Word, right? I've never spoken to a member of Oak Park who says, you know, I just don't love the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean you don't struggle to read it or have, have wrestle with the Scriptures, but never one said, yeah, I just I hate the Bible. Why? Because you're a Christian. You have a heart that loves. You know that, just as we sang, where else shall we go, Lord? For you have the words of eternal life. And so if we're genuinely Christians, then we're genuinely going to love Christ and long to keep His commands. But we need to remember not everyone is in the same place of sanctification, right? A Christian could be ignorant of what they are doing. Or maybe you could be misunderstood in your understanding of Scripture. And what you're all worked up about, really got yourself in a frenzy over nothing. But where we give charity to one another is we recognize we're all a work in progress. Now, this doesn't mean that the one whose conscience is not bothered by what you're bothered by has no regard for the things of the Lord. I've kind of already said that. But in simple terms, to summarize, Paul is saying, give each other the benefit of the doubt and don't assume the worst of them. Assume they're striving just like you to battle sin and live for the glory of Christ. You and I do not know how God is working in the heart of another person. And that's really comforting. You and I do not know. And just think about your own conversion. I think about mine. I had Christians in my life who I spoke to years later who thought I was a hopeless cause. And they spoke to seasons of my life where I can remember they have no idea after that night how I was weeping as I drove home over conviction. They had no clue. And then the next day I lived just like I was the day before. But they didn't realize what, the Lord is wearing me down. Well, same thing is true of us even as Christians. Things that we used to think were okay earlier in our life, we don't think are okay now. And there's still areas in our life we have blind spots. And the Lord's working on those areas in us at different times and different paces. And so you and I don't know how God is working, but what we do know is that God is working in each one of us, right? And so when we judge or despise another person, you know what we're doing? We're judging them based on where they're not. And conveniently forgetting where we're not, right? Failing to take in consideration, because often we don't know everything going on, where God has brought them. Brothers and sisters, a healthy church will have people at different levels of sanctification, biblical literacy, and maturity. If every person is at the same place, then we aren't fulfilling the Great Commission. We aren't growing as a body of Christ. We have a limit, 
and we've stopped. Now, there's a very important principle that we cannot miss, and I want to come back to verse 5. So where do we go? Notice that when he's talking about these issues, he, he kind of sneaks in there right before verse 6. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What, what is he talking about? Well, about the matter that you disagree with. You need to be fully convinced of your position. That's what he says. That's the solution. Now, what does he mean by that? He's talking about doing your best to be approved by God through the study of his word. That as you have wrestled with the scriptures, as you have considered this matter in light of God's word, and probably that involves having conversations with your pastors or other leaders in the church, You've asked, hey, I'm struggling here. This is what I believe. Am I wrong here? Speak into my life. He's saying, be fully convinced in your mind. Do the work. And then come to your own conclusion. And here's the important thing. And if you're able to give thanks to God and honor Him in that decision, we move on. We agree to disagree. That's what he's saying. And so to this end, there are two questions that each of us needs to wrestle with. And I want you to think right now, I think this would be helpful. Think of the current conflict you are in. Maybe you're like, I'm not in one. Well, praise God, you're going to be. All right? <clears throat> think of the current, most recent current conflict in your life. And I want you to wrestle with these two questions. Number one, are you sure that what you think is sin is really sin? thing that you are dying on that hill over, is it really sin? In other words, are you sure that you aren't going beyond what the Scripture actually teaches on a matter? Could you be mistaken of God's Word in enforcing something that God actually doesn't demand or expect? If you haven't done the work, Stop getting in other people's business. You don't even know what God's Word says on it. It's just what you think. You need to be able to test this with Scripture and have a reason you think, yep, this is sin. Okay. Number two, are you sure that what you don't think is sin is really not sin? Can you really give thanks and honor to God for that which you have taken liberty to enjoy? Or do you not even think about it? Are you sure you have that liberty in Christ? Are you really pursuing holiness in your life? Or has your conscience become desensitized to the things that God actually hates? Both those questions are instructive to all of us, aren't they? And as Paul told the Corinthians, I write these things so that none of you may go beyond what is written. He's talking about the Scriptures. And so you can go beyond what is written by enforcing something God hasn't said and call it uh, said is sin and call it sin. And you can go beyond what is written by saying something's not sin, what God has clearly called sin. Now, what if it genuinely is sin? Because there's some of you, I, I know, I've gotten some of the questions, well, what if it's sin? What, what, we're supposed to deal with it. Okay, well, the Scripture tells us how to deal with it. 
But you know what? No one, I'm thinking about church discipline, is disciplined on the opinion of one person. Why? Because all our conscience are different. But there's a, there's a, there's a, a process by which if someone is in unrepentant, clear sin, well, all the church will come to the agreement they are in clear sin. But if the whole church isn't in that agreement, then you need to let it go. You're, in a healthy Bible-preaching church, the whole church isn't going to just turn their blind eye to sin. Okay, That doesn't mean there are dangers there, but I can't address every single situation. I'm just dealing with this in principle. But at the end of the day, here's, here's where you and I need to strive. We need to strive to the best of our knowledge and the best of our ability to live in honor of Christ. Can I say I have a clear conscience before God? Can I say that? And as we consider one another, we then trust the, the means of God's grace in the life of the church to work in them. So let's assume you're strong, you're right. Let's just assume we're right. Everybody's like, amen, I'm right, okay? And that person's wrong, okay? How, how do you deal with it? I would encourage us to trust the means of grace in the life of the church. What do I mean by that? Think about this. Right now, God is working in each one of our hearts differently but under the same preached word. That person that you're in conflict is listening right now, and they're a Christian, and the Spirit of God will work in them when he's ready. Do you believe that? Just as he's working in your heart. We're all sitting under the same preached word. By and large, we're all attending the same Bible studies, and we are living in the same gospel community where the Holy Spirit is working in each of us to bring us in completion of Christ. I don't know about you, but as a pastor... As a parent, that brings me great joy because it lifts the burden off me. It doesn't mean I don't have a role and responsibility in the life of my children and my family, or certainly it doesn't mean I advocate my role as a pastor, but just even as a, as a fellow member of Christ, there are things that, yeah, I see in people's lives, and I'm sure you've seen in mine. I'm like, yeah, I don't approve. I don't think that's wise. I don't think that's godly. But you won't receive that. You know what I do? I pray for you. And I pray that as the word is saturating your life and you're interacting with other believers, that God is going to do, continue to do the work that he began in you. And I can rest in that. And you can rest in that for all of us, right? This is why Paul says in verses 7 through 9, for none of us lives to himself. This is, this is so interesting. None of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. To this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. What's Paul's point here? All of us live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, don't we? He's our master. He's doing a work in us, whether we're alive or whether we're dead. He's working. 
And he is the master of us all. And the reason he died and the reason he rose again is so that he would be the Lord of the living and the dead. Why is that so important? Because here's the good news, brothers and sisters. Christ will not let his children ultimately go astray. He uses the church, but his spirit which dwells within us and the preached word, he keeps us. He guards us. And just as you're worried about that person you don't approve of, well, guess what? He's keeping them and he's keeping you. And he will keep us in life and he will keep us in death. This is Paul's point in verse 4. Why are are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And there's balance to this, but really, why are you so concerned about the other person? That's what he says. Why are you so concerned? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, not before you. And you should be thinking, yep, whether I stand or fall isn't going to be before fellow men, it's going to be before God. And then he says with confidence at the end of verse 4, and he or she will be upheld. Why? For the Lord is able to make him or her stand. Brothers and sisters, we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And our master is doing a work in us so that on the day that he judges humanity, you and I will be able to stand on the day of judgment. And the truly mature in Christ understands this principle, and it will show as they interact with others. They don't have to win every argument. They're playing for the, lo- the end game. You know what? If that person's astray here, off, isn't willing to listen, you know what? I, I, you know what? The Lord's going to work in their heart. You know what I'll do? I'll just start praying the Lord will work in their heart, and I'll leave it alone. Because I'm confident that he who began a good work in them will bring it to completion. Just as he's doing that for me. And the truly mature understands that. And they know that God will not let any of his children stay in the wrong. So if it's truly sin, and they're truly a believer, you can rest assured that God will not let them fall away. You can't. You don't have to play Holy Spirit in someone else's life. And so therefore, since Christ is our Lord, we are to be seeking to honor Him to the degree of faith that has been assigned to each. That goes all the way to chapter 12. Verse 3. Each of us has been assigned to a degree of faith. We'll honor and give thanks to Him to wherever you are. And on that note, it's also good for us to remember, third and finally, that each of us will give an account for our own life before God. You're not going to give an account to anybody else but yourself. And there's great freedom in that, right? Great freedom when you realize another person's sanctification and growth is not dependent upon you. That doesn't mean that it happens in isolation from you. You might be a means of someone's sanctification the way you don't realize you're being it. Some of you aren't catching the drift of what I'm saying there. 
You who rub another person wrongly, or that person who drives you crazy might be God's means of grace in your life. To cause you to be humbled. Now to say that another person's growth and sanctification isn't dependent upon you doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't use you in another person's sanctification. But there is a limit, right? And it's not ultimately dependent upon you and me. And this means that we should be more concerned about our own walk with the Lord because we won't be given an account for anyone else's life but our own on that day. And this is why Paul says in, in verses 10 through 12, and we're wrapping this up, why do you pass judgment on your brother? There's the, the weak. Or why do you despise your brother? There's the strong. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, I, as I says the Lord, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Oak Park, God has appointed a day in which everyone will stand before his throne. And he will judge the thoughts and intention of everyone's heart through his son, Jesus the Christ. So all the more, each of us needs to make sure we have a clear conscience before the Lord and how we live our life. That's back to verse 4. Having each of us our mind made up. And when we truly consider ourselves and how he's going to make us stand on that day, we'll be much more gracious to those, even those we have more, much of disagreement with over a matter. So this morning we've looked at three principles for living in harmony with one another. However, what do we do when another brother and sister is fully convinced that something is sin, and it's not. Well, what we're going to see next Sunday is that the strong in faith pursues what makes for peace. The truly mature determines not to put a stumbling block before another and sacrificially walks in love towards his brother and sister in Christ. So right now, what I want us to do is stand we're going to sing, He Will Hold Me Fast. I think that's a fitting song to remind us that we don't even keep ourselves. He keeps us. And He will save us on the day that He returns.